So last week, we started a brand new series called Mind Your Step, which we're going to get into in a second. But before we climb into the part two of the series, I want to have a, a brief little conversation with anyone, whether you're here joining us online or here in person, who would consider themselves a riversider. For those of you who might have been with us the last few weeks, you would probably know by now that the challenge that the Lord has laid upon us as a leadership for this church is that we move from being static Christians to dynamic disciples. And what we mean by that is for many of us, the idea is I was off, now I'm on. I was in darkness, now I'm in light. Now I'm going to the good place. Thank you, Jesus, for saving me. I've got it from here and I do life my way. Whereas that is not how Jesus describes it. He doesn't say, follow me until you get saved. We always live a life of following Him. And so for some of us, we need to start taking steps of intentionality so that we can continue following Jesus. The word that you've already heard a number of times this morning that describes this reality is the word disciple. One of the best English translations of the word disciple is an apprentice. We're always moving towards Jesus. We're always following Him and we become disciples by following Jesus. Now, three weeks ago, we had our Vision Sunday and the week before that, we had our week of prayer and fasting. And for those of you who joined us for that week, you'd remember that the challenge was, goal B is for us as a church to have a week of prayer and fasting. Goal A was for prayer and fasting to be catalyzed in our lives. So not only do we do something anomalous for one week, but we start incorporating it into the rest of our lives. And so here's a, just a gentle moment. And if you're not a Riversider, this is not for you. But for those of us who are, gentle moments of accountability. How's it going? In case you missed that by any chance, we gave out some resources during the course of that week but all those resources are available on our app and on our website, but also on our YouTube channel, where what we tried to give you was different ways of praying and doing some spiritual practices that I don't care where you are in your faith, it can take you one or two steps forward. From A to B or E to F or S to T, but you've got something that is gonna walk you forward. And so I'm hoping that many of you have started incorporating this into your life of following Jesus and that we aren't falling back into the trap of Christianity is something that I simply do by going to a church on Sunday and consuming the worship and the sermon. And so as we continue following Jesus, just so that you know, we are going to have moments of inspiration. And we are going to have moments of coaching and equipping. And then there are going to be moments like these where there's some gentle accountability. Are we moving towards Jesus taking deliberate steps? Because that is what it means to be 
a disciple. So transitioning from that into this week's message, one of the things we realized is that we as Christians don't live out our Christianity in safe, little Christian temperature-controlled bubbles. Rather, we live our faith out there with real pain and real pleasure and real pressures and real problems, and it is very difficult. And so the reason we called the series Mind Your Step is as we're walking our faith out in the real world, what are the kinds of things that more often than not we're putting our foot into it? And how can we wisen up and live our faith with more intentionality? Now, I kind of apologize, don't apologize for the following metaphor, but uh, Often, just because of who we are, we've got lots of cars in our front lawn and whether it's a life group meeting or a leadership meeting or a connect course meeting, obviously all of these happen in the evening. We've got all these cars crammed into our front lawn. But unfortunately, the front lawn is the domain of our Labrador. And our Labrador loves eating. And so what goes in must come out. And you know we're talking about landmines. And so on occasion, our garden is clean. But then our Labrador gets busy and on the way out, our various guests are making their way through the dark towards their car and somewhere halfway home, a smell starts to surface to their nose, letting them know that they put their foot in it. And so the question is, and this is why it is an apt metaphor, how are we doing the same? And how can we learn to mind our step? Last week, we spoke about navigating culture and society as Christians. And today, we are going to be talking about outrage. I don't know if you've noticed, but the world is very angry right now. And I'm not just talking about the war in in the East, which is its own thing, I'm talking about how we wholesale seem to have lost civility. The ability to talk about anything, even where we disagree with wisdom and kindness and conviction and grace. And of course, we've got no shortage of stinky landmines to argue about gender issues and critical race theory and vaccines and masks and the mark of the beast and conspiracy theories. And regardless of what you think about any one of these issues, the climate of today is such that you almost do not have an opinion until you're outraged about it. Until you're super offended by everyone else who holds to a contrary position to you. How's that working out for us, right? Now, I wish that Christians were immune from this. I wish that in the midst of all this anger and being hyper-offended, I wish the Christian voice, yes, was speaking with conviction and speaking with grace. I wish we were the salt and the light of these conversations. 
I wish that we were speaking as, uh, as we read in the Word, that our conversations were full of grace and seasoned with salt, not full of salt and seasoned with a little bit of grace. I heard someone say recently that it's very easy to act like a Christian, but sometimes it's difficult to react like one, yeah? Now, this is not new. See, Christians have had to be reined in for thousands of years And just before we get into a passage of Scripture that's going to help us in this, I know that this morning I am poking the bear. I know that we like church to be this nice, safe place, right, where we go and do our church thing and go home. But now, Stephen, you're getting into these places that are painful and difficult, right? And so right from the outset... I want you to notice your own emotions as we talk about this. Because we're going to hear in a second how if we're unthoughtful about our own own emotions, not only do we run the risk of actually hearing wrongly, but our emotions may prevent us from completely hearing what God might want to say to us this morning. So let us all, as much as I'm needing to be courageous to speak about this, let us all be courageous and recognize this is a very emotive space. Now, very often a sermon has a bit of a predictable structure. Part A is like teaching, word. Part B is like application. This is how you live it out. When we go through this passage of Scripture, it's going to be kind of all into one. So we're going to be doing some teaching, some application, teaching application, more scripture, teaching application. So I hope you're ready. I hope you've got your notes page out. I hope you've got your journal out. And we're going to dive in starting at 1 Timothy chapter 1. 1 Timothy chapter 1. And here is Paul writing to Timothy. And he writes this. As I urged you, When I went into Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus so that you may command certain men not to teach false doctrine any longer. And some of you are saying, Stephen, that's exactly why I'm so outraged. That's exactly why I'm so active on Facebook and why the sparks are flying as I type away my responses. It's because of false doctrine and false pastors and false teaching. And yes, that's a very real thing. Let's maybe learn how we can do this better. I want to throw something out there. And the first thing that I want us to think about is, I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but who is Paul writing to here? The book's name is Timothy, 1 Timothy. This is the first letter that Paul is writing to Timothy. Why is he writing to Timothy? Timothy is the pastor of the church in Ephesus at the time. And so he is saying, Timothy, pastor of the Ephesus church, part of your responsibility in protecting and guiding and guarding and governing the sheep is what happens doctrinally amongst your church. And you need to take this seriously. And so there is a responsibility that I as a pastor and that we as elders have over this church that we do not have over the church round the corner or the church on the other side of the ocean. 
And I've got to be thoughtful about what we as Riverside are being fed, but I don't have the same power or authority over another congregation, and neither do you for that matter. Now, of course, just the world that we live in with our mobility and with the internet and podcasts and with YouTube and books that are accessible to us, of course, there are all sorts of teachings that are making their way into all of our local churches. And we need to know how to discern that, not just me, you included, but there is a world of a difference between us being pastorally concerned about what we are consuming versus throwing mud at another pastor on the other side of the ocean. Now, for those of you who were with us last year, one of the key, I think, ideas around this is a sermon that we preached called His Last Prayer. If you weren't with us, please go and find it on our YouTube channel, Riverside Community SA. It's about Jesus' final prayer in the garden, John chapter 17. And the thing, number one, at the top of the list, the thing that Jesus prioritizes in His final prayer is for the unity of believers. And not just a superficial unity, but as I and the Father are one, may they too be one, Father. The degree to which Jesus and the Father are united, we are to be united. And so we need to recognize that when it comes to our faith and the kinds of things that have the power to divide us, especially when it comes to what Timothy is, ta is being taught here about doctrine, that there are different tiers of doctrine. We've got primary doctrine. These are basically the things that ought to unite Baptists and free churches and Methodists and Presbyterians. These are the kinds of things that if you don't believe them, we love you and we're still going to serve you, but you're not a Christian any longer. The nature of Christ, His human and fully divine nature, what was accomplished on the cross, His resurrection. The minute we start dialing those back, we're no longer Christian. So those are primary beliefs. But then we've got secondary beliefs. Now the problem with secondary beliefs is that some of them are incredibly important. And so we can talk about baptism. And we may disagree with the church around the corner on baptism, even though we agree on all primary issues. Or the work of the Holy Spirit today, especially with regards to some of the spiritual gifts. These are incredibly important and affect our lives in huge ways, but they're still secondary issues. You can have different views of baptism and both be God-honoring, God-loving, faithful Christians. The other thing that makes secondary issues tricky is because some of the issues are tricky. 
And whether we talk about some of the end time stuff or some of what's going on in some of the books of the prophets, that, that's important, but it's really, really difficult territory. And so absolutely, let's have coffee. Let's talk about it. I've got convictions on all of those issues, but they're not primary issues. And then we heard last week, there are also biblical issues that are issues of conscience, meaning that even within the same church, two different people, according to their informed consciences, may arrive at two different places and I'm called to love you and not judge you. And you're called to love me and withholding judgments about me. So we've got primary issues, secondary issues, and issues of conscience. And if you really want to, we can throw some in between layers there, but let's keep it there for now. Now, when we go online and when we look at the kind of issues that are drawing out so much outrage, I wish I could tell you they were all primary issues. Just by the way, if you are dealing with a primary issue online or with someone in your family, whatever the case might be, I still don't think outrage is the best response. Yes, we can have a holy discontent about that and figure out how best to be salt and light and truth in these moments. Absolutely. Outrage, not too convinced. Having said that, I would say secondary issues tertiary issues, quaternary issues, and issues of conscience are taking up 99% of the airwaves about which we are getting so ungodly and self-righteous about. And so I want to be crystal clear. When we divide over secondary issues, that is sinful. The Scriptures put division and contentiousness on the same level as many of these other issues. So Stephen, does that mean that I can't have convictions and I can't, you know, have conversations about this? Of course not. And in a second, we're going to talk more about how we can proceed. But let's let the Scriptures guide us in this. We've read verse 3. Let's get to verse 4. Remember, Paul has just said, stay there in Ephesus so that you may command certain men not to teach false doctrines any longer, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. Apparently, debating about genealogies and myths and the book of Genesis is 2,000 years old. And if you look at some of the Jewish commentaries, it is several thousand years old. Once again, let's grow and develop some convictions. But Paul is saying here, but don't divide over that stuff. Why? He says so clearly, because these promote controversies rather than God's work. For some of us, the controversy is God's work. I'm a watchman and I'm called to call out falsehood even if they're tertiary and quaternary issues. And so I'm into the controversy. Here's just one of my thoughts on this. If you're truly about God's work of the kingdom of God, you won't have time for controversies. 
And so do we love being right more than the kingdom of God? Do we love the fight more than what God is wanting to do through us in this world that needs grace and light so desperately? You see, the goal of this command is love. I'm just gonna read this whole verse and make some comments. The goal of this command is love, which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. The goal of this command is love, which comes from a pure heart. Let me ask you, when you're so outraged and when you're slamming this person with your logical and biblical arguments, I want to ask you a genuine question. Is that truly coming from a place of love? Now, it's easy to say, I'm doing this in love, but... No, is it truly coming from a place of love? And secondly, is it truly coming from a place of a pure heart? Have you interrogated your motives? Are you 100% sure that this outrage and this anger is not coming from your own brokenness and your own pain and your own sense of the lack of control that we have around our environments at the moment and your own losses and your own grief and your own undealt with problems? Are you sure about that? I would say, if you have any doubts about that, close the computer. And then it also talks about a clear conscience. And again, just to touch on last week, have you, are you sure you have formed your conscience well? Are you sure this isn't just a hobby horse? Are you sure you haven't just climbed onto the latest cultural issue and you're slapping a few Christian verses on it? Are you sure your conscience and your heart and your motives are in a pure place and are clearly formed? These are dangers that we need to be so careful about. And then it talks about a sincere faith. That my faith is first and foremost about pleasing Jesus following Jesus, representing Jesus well in this world. Is that what's driving me? Because as we engage with this world around us, these are the kinds of things that need to be visible in our conversations and our interactions. And then also in our life, as people watch us from afar, Here's something we need to know about what's going on. Anger works like an iceberg. Yes, there's the visible part, but of far greater importance than the visible part. And by the visible part, I'm suggesting that that's the particular argument or the latest person to tick you off or whatever's occupying your attention right now. That's the visible part. But as the Titanic discovered, the far bigger part, something like 85%, is the subsurface stuff. 
And that's the stuff that capsizes us, but we ignore it because we can't see it. And this explains why often our angry responses are not proportional to whatever's going on in this particular moment. Because what's happening subsurface, listen, I don't know where you're at right now. I know that some of you are feeling like, it feels like I'm finding my life again. I know that some of you are just feeling like, yeah, it's been such a battle the last two years, but it feels like I'm starting to see my way through this. And I know some of you are nowhere close. But there's not a person in this room that has not experienced incredible loss and grief and challenge over the last 24 months. And so beneath the visible part of our anger are all of these emotions that if we haven't dealt with them properly, accumulate and our icebergs are at an all-time high. Add to that, and what I'm about to say is demonstrably true. This is no conspiracy theory. Facebook has admitted this. Hate generates more clicks and more shares than love. Even if it's true, you are being disproportionately exposed to negativity. Which means how that impacts how you experience life and the world is going to be skewed by hate and negativity. Just by the way, many sociologists have come to the conclusion that you and I were never designed to be exposed to the lives of billions of people. That the average human being was designed to live in villages of a few thousand up to max 10,000. And so when it comes to grief, We've got a population of about 10,000 people that we're aware of and the struggles of that group of people. And then we hear about the village around the corner, but we're not entirely sure. And if something happens in the country across the world, we may hear about it 10 years later. You and I, by the time we get home, are going to be exposed to hundreds of messages. Again, even if they're true about the state of the world that we're in, disproportionately negative, and that's going to shape us, and that's going to damage us, and that's going to grow this iceberg beneath us. And then someone comes along and disagrees with me about something. And just like when a boil gets popped, all this rage and this pain and all the grief of these issues gets dumped upon this poor guy. And so this happens in our relationships, in our churches, in our friendships, in our witness, in our faith. And even if we felt like our friendships were strong or our churches were strong or our relationships were strong or our faith was strong, even the Titanic gets capsized by what it never saw. Listen, the gravitational pull, if we're unintentional, is not towards health. 
it is most certainly towards unhealth. And healthy doesn't happen on its own, especially with our huge blind spots and our undealt with and unprocessed emotion. So we need help in this. I want to give you an example. This is what I was alluding to earlier of how our emotions can somehow just blind us to what is actually going on. So a friend of mine is the leader of a, of a significant church here in Johannesburg with a, just a reputation of being present in a Bible-believing church. And last year, he, not mentioning names, of course, last year he decided to preach on a bit of a contentious subject, much like what I'm doing today. And I know him and I know his particular view on this particular topic and it's not like out there far left, far right and it's biblical and it's well researched but he did know that he was potentially poking the bed just by going there on a Sunday and so predictably on Monday he got a couple of emails of some people who were up the wrong way. One of them was a church member who had been there for a long time and it was said, here's my, here's my resignation, I'm leaving the church because of your sermon yesterday. And so what can you do when someone's decided to do that? But it, being his day off, he decided to leave it. The next day, he gets another email retracting the former email saying, you know what? Before I did such a drastic move, I decided to go listen to the sermon again. And so I've got a question for you. The sermon that's online, is it the same as the sermon I heard on Sunday? Because <laughs> they've got multiple services. Because the sermon I listened to yesterday was encouraging and thoughtful and challenging and biblical, and I'm on board with that. You know what his answer was? Exactly the same sermon. This is an illustration of how our emotions can actually obscure truth and can get in the way of what God is truly wanting to say to us. And so how often has that story played out in our relationships, in online conversations, battles on WhatsApp groups, battles online, battles in our life groups, in our churches. And so we need to learn how to deal with our icebergs. The world would call it emotional intelligence. We would call it confession, healing, spiritual and emotional maturity. And so I don't have time in the next five minutes to counsel every single one of you through your icebergs. But if I could leave one piece of advice for you, it is this. Talk it out before you act it out. And by talk it out, I'm not talking about complaining because that will lead to, to bitterness. I'm talking about finding a space, maybe with your spouse, to say, listen, this is just where I'm at and I need to just talk about it. I need these emotions to lose their power in my life. This is where you find someone who maybe is more mature than you. Someone who's not going to maybe dive in with a thousand how-tos and how to fix you. Someone who's going to listen to you. 
Someone who may even have the wisdom to challenge you gently. Someone, and by the way, if someone chooses you as their person and you don't know where to start, do this. Listen, ask questions, and pray for them. That's very different to gossiping, complaining. We want to move towards healthiness. Some of us may even choose to do this with a therapist. And just by the way, Anton, free advertising for the journey. The journey is one of the courses that we run and that if you're realizing that your iceberg is out of control, I want to advise that you go on the journey. And they're going to be advertising over the next few weeks as a tool, as a framework, as something that is going to help you step by step start dealing with all of these unprocessed emotions and pains. Not guaranteed to fix you, but to start moving you towards health. Now there's more. I wish I could just close and say amen. But verse six, I'm gonna read verse six and seven, make a few comments and then we're done. Some have wandered away from these. What is he talking about when he says these? He's talking about love, faith, pure heart, a good conscience. Some have wandered away from these and have turned to meaningless talk. That's a synonym for the internet. Okay, I'm not into the internet. There's so much great stuff out there. We need to know how to do it. Verse seven, they want to be teachers of the law or of medicine or of politics, but they do not know what they are talking about or what they so confidently affirm. Now listen, I encourage us to grow and to learn and to understand our world and what is going on around us. I think we should have informed and growing opinions on politics and on all the COVID-19 and related issues. I really think we need to do this. By the way, it's very important where you get your information from. If you only get your information from one particular news source in the States, I guarantee you there's something wrong one way or the other. If the website or the video is from like Truth Hunter 666, you're probably dealing with a dude who's 18 years old living at home with his mom. And so we need to know where am I getting my opinions from? Let me be wise. And so I think the antidote isn't no opinions, the antidote is humility. Every single one of us has areas in our lives over which we have some understanding and some mastery. And as much as I may have some understanding and mastery over theology, even in the world of theology, I've got to show humility because I may be wrong on certain issues. And sometimes just in my world, I read someone with a contrary opinion and I'm like, this dude's nailed it. And then I read someone who's on the other side, I'm like, oh no, because he sounds like he's nailed it. 
And so I've got to humble myself. And the same is true with this world around us, especially where there is such volatile disagreements. And finally, I think what we need to learn to do where we are needing to speak and share our convictions is to master the art of disagreement. This is the civil conversation that we were talking about at the beginning. Now, if you've been in church for longer than five minutes, you would have heard a pastor quote C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis is one of the smartest Christian minds of the 20th century. And the way he's quoted is kind of like the trump card. You quote C.S. Lewis and that's a slam dunk. But apparently C.S. Lewis was a great guy to disagree with. And I'm like, you can imagine disagreeing with C.S. Lewis. But apparently he prided himself as being a gracious person with conviction to disagree with. And so one of his former students, George Watson, said of him after his death, this is what he said, I love it. The best teacher I ever had and the best colleague, he did not ask me or expect me to share his convictions. His manner might be described as politely merciless. <laughs> I love it. If you've ever read him, you would see why. His twin passions by then, apart from literature itself, were people and arguments, but he did not often make the mistake of confusing them. Wow. He had vigor without venom. He was generous. If I were ever to be asked what I learned from him, that would be my reply, the art of disagreements. And so maybe let's land with a scripture verse that can encourage us, not so much what not to say and not to do, but what can we say and how can we do it? Ephesians 4 verses 29. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion. Just press pause on that. Part of the problem with social media is when you sit over a coffee table from somebody, you can read the room. You can see, oh, they've had a tough day. Maybe they're from your life group and you're aware of just some of the challenges that are going on in their life. And so you can be aware of the occasion. And you might choose to respond in one way and one week later choose to respond in a very different way if you're wise, because you can read the occasion. But when you send your shotgun blast out on social media, you have no idea what's going on in all of these people's lives. That it may give grace to those who hear. Now, yes, sometimes it is loving and gracious and constructive to sometimes get into these difficult territories. But I hope you're hearing the tone of this. But imagine in our angry and divided world, imagine this is what Christians were known for. For building people up. 
for being wise unto the occasion, for using their words to impart grace and light and life. Right now, I don't know if what the world needs is one more opinion on caps lock at full volume. I want us to be people of grace who at times are quick to listen and slow to speak. And when we speak truth, it's from a place of wisdom and conviction and timing and it's not simply posturing. Now, the kind of stuff that we spoke about today, it would be so much easier just to simply say, stop it. Just stop it. That's never worked with me and I doubt it works with you. You see, that's the visible stuff. And I want to invite you as difficult and as painful as it might be to allow God into the subsurface stuff. It is way easier to dump on someone and use them as my vent for all of this pain and emotion and to feel righteous in that space, that is way easier than the process, the painful process of healing. But just like someone can stab you with a knife or a scalpel and they'll both hurt the same, one is for the purpose of healing. And so we need to come to our divine healer and allow him into these painful areas for the purpose of healing. Now I want to ask God to do that, but I want to ask you to embrace this in your life. Let's pray. Father, you are a good father and there's not a father in this world who wants to unnecessarily bring pain into their children's lives. And Lord, you seek good for us and you work in all things for our good and those who are called according to your purposes, including our pain. But Lord, just for a moment of repentance and clarity, we choose to hear your voice in this moment and we choose to recognize that I don't know if I've always responded from a pure heart and a clean conscience. I don't know if I've always sought to listen and understand before I speak. I don't know if I've always imparted grace. So Lord, I choose to repent of that. I choose to humble myself, even in my convictions, even though they may be true. There's just way more of my brokenness mixed up in those spaces. So God, moments of clarity before you. We're guilty. I'm guilty. Not for our condemnation, but so that we could stand and receive grace from the throne of heaven. And so Lord, the grace that we need is not simply to act differently in toxic situations, but to invite your healing power into our pain and our brokenness and our pressures and our problems. I want to encourage if any of you are in this space to take some intentional time out this week 
When I say talk it out before you act it out, it starts with God. Even if this isn't normal for you, take out a journal. And start off by giving yourself some time and space. Lord, show me my iceberg. Show me where my anger is truly coming from. And write out whatever God shows you. Itemize it. Confront it. Look at it in the face. And then literally talk it out with God. God, I realize how much undealt with pain I still have. And I realize I still haven't forgiven so and so. I still haven't moved on from that pain. I'm still carrying around unforgiveness. I'm still carrying around anger at you because of what I've lost financially. And you can complete the confession. But talk it out with God before you even ask Him to fix it. Talk it out with Him. And so, Lord, we're going to choose to do that, trusting Your ability to hear, trusting Your ability to heal. And I pray as we are in those vulnerable places in this week, that we won't be left alone in those vulnerable places, but that Your Spirit and Your love would meet us in a very healthy and powerful and healing way in those places. And as we have conversations, may we have conversations that don't lead to bitterness, but they lead to healing, life and love. And even if this takes months, God, we're committed to being a disciple. And part of that is being a healed disciple. A disciple that is always in need of your healing power because you're never fully there. God, I realize that it's so easy just to pray for this and the end. So God, I've got to trust our church into your hands and the connected relationships into your hands. And I ask God on behalf of every single one of us that there is a significant growth in the way your healing love and power deals with us as we courageously walk into this space with you. And yes, Lord, in those heated moments, give us restraint. Give us pause. Give us humility and wisdom. God, we pray this in your name. And we know that we need this and this world needs us. In the name of Jesus, amen. Amen.